This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. There is a lot of work to do, and <laughs> that's why wherever I go, I, I say, you know, there is plenty of work. Let's all get together. Let's you know, be passionate about this. Let's move forward. And there are a lot of great men and women all over the country doing this incredible work. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Nancy Spector. She's the Associate Dean of Faculty Development at Drexel University College of Medicine. She's also the Executive Director of ELAM, the wildly successful and very famous Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic, Kim. How are you? Good. I'm so glad that you called into the Faculty Factory podcast. I know everybody's always talking ELAM, ELAM, ELAM. It's like some secret code uh, between women. So I know we want to, everybody's dying to hear more about ELAM and how you how you developed it and your experiences over the years. And let's back up a minute. And if you wouldn't mind, tell us how you got into faculty development and how did your career evolve to find you working with faculty and leadership? Sure. I'd love to tell that story. Um, This actually starts a long time ago when I was a child. Um, My parents both had strong ties to education. They were both educators. My father, in fact, just recently retired at the age of 76, actually 78, from his position as director of the curriculum at the Brown University Medical School. And uh, he had an interesting journey in that he's an EDD and traveled through education before he came to medicine. And my mom, at retirement, was the assistant superintendent of Newton Public Schools in Massachusetts, a really big school district. So I had a lot of uh, exposure to education as a child, but my both of my parents told me that I should not be a teacher. Um, and that was because they were teachers in secondary schools in the 60s and did not feel that teachers were adequately compensated, um, and that their um, their lives were a little more challenging than they would like mine to be and my brothers. So they suggested we did not be teachers. And in fact, I was, uh, I went into medical school and my brother is a corporate lawyer. So very different. But I went to medical school because I loved, loved sci- science. And I eventually matched into a pediatric residency program that I just loved. And as I became Farther in my career as a resident and then a chief resident, I learned that I really was drawn to education. Um, And also, something happened to me that was really uh, very profound for me. My first inpatient medicine attending um, was Dr. Daniel Shidlow, and he is actually my boss today. Um, He's the dean of our medical school, um, and he has been a longtime mentor and sponsor to me. But I met him on my first inpatient attending, uh, as he was the first inpatient attending. And at the end of the month, he said to me, Nancy, you should consider academic medicine, which I didn't even understand was a thing. Um, And so this whole world opened up to me. Um, I was a chief resident, and then I did a faculty um, development fellowship during my general academic peds fellowship. And I really just, this whole world continued to open up. And at that time, when I was finishing my fellowship, my mentors told me that I should um, touch base with Paige Moorhan, who was the chair of microbiology at our medical school. She was a great educator. And I went to see her, and uh, she was, in fact, creating ELAM during the time I was meeting with her. And she spent a lot of time telling me how I could be a great educator, what courses I should go to, et cetera. But what she said to me was, you need to do leadership training at every stage of your career because that will give you the skills to really make big impact. And so I did. I followed her advice. Um, I took leadership courses throughout my career. And then in 2009, I was very fortunate to be our dean's nominee into ELAM. And that was a transformative time for me. The exposure to high-level leadership skills 
was amazing. But what really was impactful for me is the network that I was exposed to through my classmates at ELAM and then the alumni. And so it was in that time period I realized that I love medical education, I love faculty development, and I became quite passionate about um, creating opportunities for women to grow in their leadership and help them as they were on a quest to um, obtain high-level leadership positions and as a group, as we were on a quest to create equity at high-level leadership positions in our medical schools. So over time, I became more active in ELAM, and uh, then I became the associate director about four years ago, five, almost five years ago now, and I have been the executive director for three, and this is the 25th year coming up of ELAM. 25 years. Wow. I'd like to take you back to something you said about uh, Dr. Daniel Shitlow, the, the dean, who ba- who knew you back at the first uh, inpatient attending experience. And, he, and you said that he, after the first day, recognized something in you and said, you need to go into academic medicine. Now, I'm curious about that because when we were talking with uh, Dr. Daryl Kirch a little while ago on the podcast, he said something similar. He said that his then boss said to him, you need to uh, go to the NIH. You need more leadership. And the mentor had said this to him at his own expense because this mentor was, by virtue of you know shoving him out of the nest, was going to be losing a good researcher. And, and I asked Dr. Kurtz then, I said, well, what, what do you think it is that he saw in you that said, ah, this guy needs to go to NIH, he needs more leadership? And Daryl said something uh, you know, about how Daryl has an innate ability to put teams together and put get people um, together around, around a topic. And I'm wondering how, uh, what do you think, Daryl? Uh, Dr. Daniels saw in you that said to him, wait a minute, academic medicine. Can you remember, can you imagine what it is about you that he uh, saw that should be um, put somewhere else? Sure. That's a, that's a really great, great question. First of all, he, I think, is a great uh, talent spotter in, in many regards. And I, and also he, he has a, quick sense of people. Um, and so uh, I've seen him meet people and then within minutes uh, sort of get to the passion areas for those people, um, whether it's a student or a resident or even a faculty member. I remember being extremely curious as a, a resident, and I also enjoyed the teaching piece. So I think that is probably partly what he saw on me, in me. Um, it wasn't until much later. So he was, uh, we were in the same hospital. He was an attending and I was a resident. And then over time, I was a chief resident and he was a vice chair. And then I was a faculty member and he was a department chair. So partly over time, he saw my passion and my interest in creating programs, helping others develop and being mentors. But on that very first day and month. I think it's probably more my curiosity, but I would have to go back and ask him, actually. I'm sure, I'm sure you're going to get to this and about, you know, leadership and gender equity and women. And, and I've been thinking lately about succession planning. And as uh, some of us, you know, in faculty development, academic affairs have been around a while, you, we always kind of have our antennae up for the next generation of leaders. And and so I'm kind of curious as to what is that thing? What is the it that would make someone uh, suitable in our profession? And, and, and sure, you're, you're exactly right. You have to have that curiosity and the, and the passion for helping people and the, the kind of an education itch that you're, you, you enjoy teaching. And, and so I, I sit across from other junior faculty members and mid-career faculty members, and and we talk, and I look at them, and and I and I wonder, you know, I wonder if we could encapsulate or define what are those characteristics that um, you know, what is the phenotype of a faculty a faculty development academic affairs dean type person, and you know, you hit that with the curiosity, and yet you know. 
we all know academicians or researchers or investigators who are really, really curious, and yet they don't have that emotional intelligence or that relational ability to connect with people. So I, I, you obviously have to have had that, that sense of um, being able to connect with people because curiosity isn't quite enough, right? Right. And then uh, you, know, you were at, uh, trying to identify characteristics of people who go into faculty development. One of the things I was, I, I was speaking to one of my own mentors um, years ago, and he was asking me, you know, what, what did I want my legacy to be? And he was talking about how important direct patient care was to him, which it definitely has been to me as well. But I said, one of the things I'm really most interested in is making really big impact in patient care. And I know that one-on-one, that's incredibly important. But if I have the opportunity to support and help others who are doing the work of growing programs, leading, you know, departments, um, building centers, and I can really uh, help them, what that means to me is huge impact um, because I have such a bigger reach through through the others that I'm working with. Um, and I think that's the other thing I was thinking about is just the joy in seeing people um, accomplish the things that they set out to do and, and reach their goals. And uh, that's just, to me, the most amazing thing. So tell us about um, ELAM, if you'd like to. I guess I didn't realize it was 25 years old. Um, can you catch them? I'm sure there are people listening to the podcast right now saying, I've never heard of this ELAM. I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it means, executive leadership and academic medicine. Would you mind, you know, taking us down a little bit of a, a tour of what the ELAM is? Absolutely. And and I probably will give a little history of uh, the institution I work for now, because that gives a little light into how ELAM came to be. Yes. Uh, so ELAM is a longitudinal, year-long, part-time, national, really international leader, leadership program for women in mid-career who currently hold leadership positions in medicine, dentistry, public health, and pharmacy. And with the graduation of the class that we have now, the 24th class, which graduates in a couple of weeks, we will have over 1,200 alumni of ELAM who hold leadership positions in over 250 of our institutions. And just uh, because I'll probably slip into saying this, um, an alumni of ELAM is also often called an ELUM, so we call them ELUMs. Um, So we have well over a 1,000 ELUMs. Um, But I'll tell you the story of how uh, ELAM came to be. And to start, I have to share a little bit about the history of this school. So we are now Drexel University College of Medicine, but we started out in 1850 as Female Medical College of Pennsylvania. We were the first medical school to admit only women. Um, And that was, the school was created because women were having difficulty getting into medical schools. So in 1850, we had our first, the first female medical college of Pennsylvania. Then we became in 1867, the women's medical college. And then when men were admitted, the name changed to medical college of Pennsylvania because men didn't want to go to the women's medical college. And then in 1998, um, we merged with Hahnemann. Um, That school had a rich history of diversity in that it was the first school in Philadelphia to admit uh, people of Irish, Italian, and um, Jewish descent. So those two schools merged and had a very interesting mixing of the cultures. And then, and finally, in 2002, we became, we were we acquired by Drexel. Um, the first, uh, the female medical college had a lot of firsts, including the first woman dean. Her name was Ann Preston. We had uh, graduated the first woman to hold a faculty position position, the second African-American woman to graduate from medical school, first Indian female, and the first two American Indian graduates, and so on and so forth. When Medical College of Pennsylvania and Hahnemann merged around in that time period, our chancellor, D. Walter Cohen, who had previously been the dental dean at Penn, 
thought he needed to do something to preserve the legacy of women and training women. And he reached out to the deans of the medical schools at the time, and overwhelmingly they said that they that you know the school, our school, um, should provide opportunities for women to gain leadership training so that um, we could continue that legacy. And so that was about 26 years ago. So that's around the time when I met Paige Morahan. And so ELAM was really sponsored by a man, Dr. Cohen. Um, when you interview Paige Morahan now, who is the person who created um, the foundation of ELAM and the curriculum, she will say that she didn't think ELAM needed to exist, would have needed to exist 25 years later. So she thought we would be irrelevant because we would have achieved gender equity at every level of leadership in the country by now. And as we all know, we have not done that. In fact, as of this month, only 18% of our deans of our medical school are women. And just to note, over half of them are ELAMs, but we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, about 20 to 25%, depending on the discipline, medicine, dentistry, pharmacy, or public health are, of our full professors are women, and equal numbers of or percentages of our chairs are women. Uh, so we really have a lot of work we still need to do. So our curriculum in ELAM, we have a class of 60 every year, and we focus really on um, leadership development, um, so personal and professional leadership effectiveness, strategic resource management, organizational dynamics, and community building. Um, and I would think uh, if you interviewed 100 ELAMs, they would say the biggest power of ELAM is the network and meeting other women who are leaders and aspire to be leaders in even higher positions. It's that network that, that gets leveraged, that provides support um, and opportunity for women. That's really, I think, the power of ELAM. Mm-hmm. Boy, isn't that, that's the theme we've been talking about with all of us, you know, across the country in our leadership programs that over and over and over again, the evaluations is that people really value that social connection, networking, meeting people, the whole I'm not alone phenomenon, the trying to minimize isolation. And that is really this basic human connection is what is so treasured in um, many of our leadership programs. Absolutely. Um, and I'll add, um, you know, we are a leadership training program, obviously. So we believe in in uh, individuals getting skills, um, learning things like graceful self-promotion, uh, strategic career planning, and all of that. But more and more um, in our classroom, um, as a community, we are thinking about ways to move away from just fixing the woman and really changing the system and the environments in which we live. Um, and partly the only way we can do that is by all of us coming together, um, so leveraging that network, um, and also, of course, including male allies and really everybody to work together to move forward to really make a difference. Well, I, it's, I like how you said that moving away from fixing the woman because we talk about how you know, in, in, in the corollary, I guess, is burnout. We, you know, everybody's talking about physician burnout. And at Hopkins, we just hired recently uh, internally a chief wellness officer at 50% effort. And, you know, we all know that we, we don't we don't want to put the blame or blame the victim for burnout saying, well, you need to eat better, sleep better, lose weight, exercise, meditate, do mindfulness, be resilient, change the way you think, that that's important. Of course, we have to address our, our personal uh, health, this, the same idea of being in the airplane when the oxygen drops. you got to take care of you first to be able to take care of anyone else. And yet, um, if you're flying in an airplane that's falling apart around you, it's not going to do you any good to be having oxygen if the wings are falling off the plane. So I, I like how... Um, ELAM is also addressing the organizational components that are associated with leadership and also burnout, that it's not enough to just fix the woman or fix the 
um, underrepresented medicine person. Um, it's it's about uh, culture change and systems change. And so how, can you tell us more about how you've been thinking about that or how your elums have done projects that think about how we can move the needle beyond fixing women? Yeah. So if you, um, Liz Travis um, is an elum. She's the, I think her title is Vice Provost of Women at MD Anderson, I believe. Um, She is a big champion of women, of course. And she'll say, we are moving the needle at glacier speed. And so we really are at a critical time, I think, that we need to do better. What I've seen is been happening interestingly across the country is people are interested more and more in collaborating and bringing groups together to think about things, you know, cohesively, um, as opposed to little groups going off here and there. Um, I'll give you some examples of things that I think are really important that we share with our our ELAM fellows. Um, By the way, they often come to us with ideas of best practice that we share, and that's the beauty of um, that network and that um, group in the classroom is that people have a lot of expertise in the room and have a lot to share. Um, so I'll, I'll just name a few things. One is um, we've been really highlighting uh, the idea of a culture of sponsorship. So it's well known in, in the business world that women are more likely to have more one or more mentors, um, but less likely to be promoted. And partly we think that's because the male network can be leveraged differently and that uh, women often underinvest in social capital. Um, and so partly it goes back to the women, you know, ensuring that they have opportunities to network and, and such, but um, ensuring that we create a, a, a culture of sponsorship. So that is um, sponsorship is different than mentorship. And I'll just go through a couple of those um, differences. So uh, a coach, this is a, a quote actually from Catalyst, the website Catalyst. A coach tells you what to do. A mentor will listen to you and speak with you, but a sponsor will talk about you. There have been a few recent articles in academic medicine that really um, summarize and capture the elements of sponsorship really nicely. Two of them are by Liz Travis, um, so in academic medicine, I believe in 2013 and 18, and then a third article that was recently published by actually the group out of Hopkins. <laughs> At least some of the authors are from Hopkins. Rachel, Rachel Levine, our, yeah, my colleague. Yes. Um, and at one point, Liz um, defines uh, sponsorship as uh, public support by a powerful, influential person for the advancement and promotion of an individual within whom he or she sees untapped or unappreciated leadership talent or potential. And that can catapult a nascent talent to rising star status. I really love that definition. Um, To be a sponsor, the person has to have power. Um, Have that eye, going back to the beginning of our conversation, have that talent to look for that potential in others and then um, give them opportunities or sponsor them or nominate them to opportunities, but then help them succeed in those opportunities um, and assist them help them navigate through politics and all of that type of thing. And the, obviously the, the relationship needs to be bi-directional, so the protégés still need to work hard, uh, be self-motivated and demonstrate trust and show loyalty to the sponsor and, and really promote the sponsor's legacy. So we've been talking quite a bit about sponsorship within ELAM. In fact, um my predecessors, Paige Morahan and Diane McGrain and some others have created a self-assessment on mentorship and sponsorship as a way to really drive the conversation and people's reflection on what they can do. Uh, but I think sponsorship really needs to be a strategic priority in, in institutions. Another thing that people are working on that we talk a lot about in ELAM are, are creating meaningful metrics that are institutions can use, but beyond our institutions are journals, so looking at editorial boards and who is authoring papers first and last, uh, who are reviewers, 
as well as um, our our professional societies organizations, so who are leading those organizations and who is receiving awards and such. So looking at metrics that we can um, share <laughs> and to see and, and see how we're making progress. Um, I have a colleague um, I've been working with quite a bit recently. Her name is Julie Silver. She's at Harvard, and she's written a series of articles uh, looking at you know, the disparities in our journals and editorial boards, our professional societies and that type of thing. So we really need to be aware. Um, there's another group, um, the Women of Impact. Uh, they are leaders, uh, women leaders of our industry, healthcare broadly. Many of them are working in C-suite positions. And that group is forming a collaborative uh, that I think is going to be launched in the summer that is really, again, looking um, to develop a set of metrics that our institutions are going to be held up to. Um, and hopefully uh, that will help drive the drive the needle moving faster as well. Um, we obviously need to do things to support people in a positive way, but having those metrics that people have to respond to, um, I think, is another potential mechanism to really move things faster. Um, and then, you know, the other big piece, so if we look at individual work, leaders' work, organizational work, um, another thing that uh, people really need to uh, consider is the policies and procedures within their own institutions that may uh, facilitate um, the ending of uh, disparities. And so there's a lot of people looking at, at working on those fronts as well. So there's a lot to do. Um, I would point people to, uh, there is a white paper by Julie Silver and her colleagues, uh, the Be Ethical campaign, um, and that's on the website of Promoting Our Women Doctors. Uh, that white paper really nicely goes through elements of things we can do at the individual level, the leader level, the organizational level, and the professional society level. Um, and again, we all need to pay attention, work together. To, to do that work together. Yeah. I was just reading something a couple of weeks ago. I think it was a chronicle of higher education talking about at scientific professional society conferences, manals versus scientific panels where, um, so M-A-N-E-L-S where, it, and I'd kind of heard about this, but it really didn't kind of pop up to the front of my head till I read this little blog, how, um, then it got me thinking, geez, when you go to a lot of these panel presentations and sitting up there on the table, it usually is mostly men. And we just become so accustomed to that that we don't even think about it. And so this call to attention, if you will, that when you're doing, when you're going to have a symposium or you are leading a panel, make sure you have the diversity uh, across the board. And the other thing that popped into my head was some, one of our, gosh, I think it was one of our department directors or maybe someone from HR was telling a story of how along the lines of trying to get a diverse candidate or diverse candidates in for positions. And they said something like, well, you'd be surprised at how quickly a search committee can find a woman if you tell them, well, since you found no women, we'll just close the search. Then all of a sudden people go, oh, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, because usually, you know, a lot of search, this person was saying the search committees will say, we've looked high and low. We've, you know, gone over hill and dale and over the river and through the woods looking and we can't find anyone. And so the person said, okay, they call their bluff, then we'll just cancel the search. And then lo and behold, um, they're able to find some diverse candidates. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, there are increasingly uh, best practices discussed about searches. So having the committee do implicit bias testing before they, you know, start the work of the committee also or, or having implicit bias workshops, having a diversity champion as part of the group, so somebody really keeping an eye towards um, thinking about the issues of diversity and implicit bias. And then more and more uh, people are requiring that at least two women be in the final four 
of selection because it's pretty well described that if you don't have two of whatever you're looking for in the final four, it's unlikely that that person will be picked, the one. So, oh, I see. That's interesting. That's new to me. Yeah, so there are a lot of that type of thing. Um, you know, and that extends to um, other other things. So boards, for instance, women on boards that the, we all report in some way to boards. Uh, most of us do, and our high-level leaders do, but our boards, the, the percent of women on boards in Fortune 500 companies, our healthcare organizations, hover around 16% or so. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of look at how to uh, address that issue. And in fact, California recently uh, passed a law for um, uh, for-profit boards that they, depending on the size, a certain number of women have to be on those boards. So there are a lot of interesting strategies going on. So as, you know, faculty affairs and faculty development people, you know, reflecting back on, you know, what Paige, you know, Morhan and Liz Travis have said over the years, this kind of frustration with a very slow moving needle. Um, what can we do to, as something you mentioned earlier, get these male allies? How can we build... Um, build these groups of people who, who, who buy it, who believe it, who get it. Uh, what should we be doing as a faculty affairs community to try to kick this in the pants? Yes. Yeah, so I would say the first thing is we need to have these difficult conversations more often. Um, you, you mentioned the Mannels uh, idea. And so when Whenever something's created, we have to be very intentional about um, the diversity and inclusion beyond gender, of course. Um, so I think we need to create uh, policies and, and checkpoints for ourselves to ensure that we are having the conversations in a, in a regular way. Um, but that even extends to the smaller things and the implicit bias. So there was the um, article that got so much press um, in social media um, from Mayo Clinic about the how people are introduced at Grand Rounds and men more often introduced by their doctor names um, and their titles than women. And that's whether they're being introduced by women or men. So we have to think about um, strategies to ensure that uh, these ideas are always in the forefront of our mind. Uh, Liz Travis, by the way, um, has been leading with others an effort in our alumni community uh, called Put Your Finger on the Scale, which basically is is every day, every time you have an opportunity to promote a woman, you need to do that, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, and so it needs to be part of everybody's work and not just the Office of Faculty Affairs or just, you know, the women who are on the Women in Medicine and Science Committee. It really has to be everyone. And how do we, I totally agree with that. And, and I love that idea of, of um, adopting a mantra or a daily reminder, uh, something that you just make it a habit to do. And how do we, how do we convince, uh, how do we share this good news and make sure that people know that it's not just a political agenda uh, that it makes good sense. You know, what I still struggle with the uh, show me the data, like who cares? How can we how can we um, convince the people who have their arms crossed and who don't buy it that that we're just making a lot of noise for no for no reason? Yeah, well, I have a feeling that we're not going to convince everybody. <laughs> And uh, I think we need to, you know, convince the critical mass to really, uh, move things along. And, and there are some who may not buy into the benefits of having a diverse uh, leadership group at every level. Um, but if we can convince the critical mass that it's important to do and move forward, I think that's important. I also think we need to hear men's voices more in in the, you know, 
persuading people that this is what we need to do. I was giving uh, grand rounds last week in a very large institution, and we were talking about you know, inequity in leadership positions, and uh, a white man in the audience raised his hand, and he said, well, how come we don't just enter a, you know, a medical school and just fire all the department chairs and rehire a diverse group? <laughs> and I said to him, wow, that's, you know, it's pretty, um, you know, Drastic. big idea. Yeah. And I said, if I had said that, people would have thought it was crazy. But he said that, and it was interesting, the room kind of perked up. Like, hmm. So I think we, again, that partnership of men and women working together and to really push some of these, you know, ideas that, you know, uh, have not, you know, we are such a traditional discipline. You know, we live in this great tradition and there's so many wonderful pieces of the tradition. Uh, But I think we need to, you know, obviously change a lot of very important things. I love how you're talking about, you know, tradition and that I think is where some people have the fear of change because they value many of our institutions are steeped in just wonderful history and tradition and and symbolic, you know, a lot of symbolism in what we these institutions stand for. So when there's this idea of change, a lot of people will understandably bristle that you're going to change an institution. I mean, I'm thinking now of uh, Notre Dame. Unfortunately, the church would happen in Paris uh, last night with the, the church burning. And I can imagine people saying, oh my gosh, you know, when we rebuild this, what will it look like? And we have to adhere to tradition. And and so I think so many of us fear the change for um, because it would be different or disrupt this tradition. And yet, you have to wonder that you have to fear becoming irrelevant, that there's this risk of irrelevance if we don't embrace diversity, as you mentioned, in all of its facets, gender and religion and ethnicity and age, that there's, if we keep our blinders on and keep doing the things the way we're doing, we risk irrelevance because that's where we're going and we have to open up our field of vision. And so I always struggle trying to figure out how do we help people to see what we're missing? You know, it's hard when you're so successful. So many of our institutions and our researchers and our clinicians, they're just so successful. And so they think, you know, why change this? We're doing wonderfully. And that that view, uh, gosh, imagine what we could be. If we're this good now, imagine if we were to open up the playing field, all the possibilities, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is uh, there are several recent articles, and there are more coming out about uh, how patients have better outcomes when they're cared for by women. Hmm. And uh, so there are people who are starting to look at that type of outcome, which obviously is incredibly important. That's the reason we are physicians is we want excellent patient outcomes. Uh, I also, so that's really interesting. Um, I have this this stack of paper. It's huge. I wish you could see my hand. Like, it's a huge stack of paper in my office because I'm a paper person still of articles demonstrating the disparities. Um, we don't need to say that anymore. We know there are disparities. What we do need to move, is my opinion, into the best practices and showing evidence that these practices make impact and improve patient care, um, improve the work environment and all those types of things. I think that's the direction that we we really need to move in. Um, and you, you talked about relevance. So I have recently started following people on social media. I had never done that in my life. I have this wonderful uh, relationship and communications manager for ELAM. Um, we have, uh, her name is Barbara Overholzer, and she's, oh, fantastic. Um, she has been connecting us to lots of people on social media, um, and that's how we've gotten involved. By the way, we're um, part of the Times of Healthcare movement. Uh, that's how we got com- connected to Julie Silver and others. But 
Um, there was a recent, I think it was over the weekend or, or late last week, where the former, not the current, the former dean of Harvard Medical School uh, posted that he was saddened by the fact that one of the the main, um, you know, amphitheaters at, at Harvard, they had removed all the portraits of the white men on the walls and that that was a shame. And you should see the response from there, including his own daughter. <laughs> So it was it was really interesting to he was, you know, lamenting the fact that things were changing, whereas everybody else felt it was an imperative that that, you know, there was a big effort at Harvard, again, uh, effort left by led by um, Julie Silver, where she asked the students to come up with images of what they thought the walls of Harvard should look like. And they really were quite different than what has been there traditionally. Um, So. We do need, I think, to uh, have these conversations, uh, and we do need to change, for sure. Can you tell us about how your office looks? Everybody's always curious about the the structures of the offices. So I'm, I'm imagining, I mean, all this important ELAM work is, I, I just envision your your Office of Faculty Affairs and Faculty Development is all ELAM but I'm sure you have a lot of people doing other things. Um, can you give us a broad brush uh, scope of what happens in your office? Absolutely. So um, I am the Associate Dean of Faculty Development and the Executive Director of ELAM. We have, I have two actual physical offices. <laughs> the first one, the one I'm in currently, is in the Dean's suite. Uh, and so the Dean, his office is a couple feet away from me, as well as his chief of staff, who's a woman. Um, And then uh, we have the Office of Faculty Affairs here as well. And then the dean of the graduate school is also on this floor and the vice dean of research. So we all interact and, and, oh, and the CFO of our medical school, who, as everybody knows, the CFO of a school is a very powerful person, so a good person to know and to and to have a good relationship with. Um, our, you know, what's neat about the faculty development office is we work in very close collaboration with faculty affairs and the dean of uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, who's Anna Nunez, and. We work together constantly on thinking and through problems, solving problems. Whenever we're putting together a program or an event, we work together to make sure all of our perspectives are heard and integrated into um, whatever it is we're doing. Uh, Together, our group um, has revised our appointments and promotions criteria. Uh, So we finished that about almost a year ago, and we created opportunities for faculty who have um, very different types of scholarship and and impact to be able to be eligible for advancement. So clinical leaders who do a lot of work in quality improvement and other types of leadership and our medical educators and others. So our group together worked to do that. And in fact, um, we created uh, metrics for our faculty on mentoring um, and have had lots of discussions around diversity as well. And then our group has taken on a project of revising our um, CV templates. So really trying to, again, get give everybody the opportunity to capture very innovative things that they're doing that, you know, didn't exist in our, you know, world even 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, we have created um, a piece of our CV to to be reflective of uh, each individual's work in um, promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion as well. So we've done some really neat things together. Um, everybody in our office, actually in the diversity office, faculty affairs and faculty development have all been through ELAM, interestingly, um, at least all the deans in those roles. So um, that's, that's very interesting. And then we... We have, I think, 27 alumni of ELAM um, within the university. Uh, Most of them are in the College of Medicine, and many of them hold leadership positions in our school. And we uh, tap into our ELAMs quite a bit to support ELAM programming and ELAM events as well. So we're very integrated that way. 
um, the ELAM office, which is in a different campus um, in Philadelphia, uh, shares office space with the Institute of Women's Health and Leadership, which is led by Lynn Yackel, and their main effort right now is around a campaign called Vision 2020. And uh, so there historically have been a lot of amazing people within the offices. The office space actually sits physically over the archives of Drexel, which are one of the largest, if not the largest, collection of women uh, in medicine, a um, uh, collection of uh, materials related to women in medicine, which is just an incredible, impressive place. Um, and we get to benefit from seeing many of the, the photographs and the documents that they have. In fact, in our office suite, there is a picture of Ann Preston, who was the first dean of of the medical school um, with Marie Curie. Um, And so there's this really, really amazing history there. Well, I guess it makes sense that Elam lives there because that sounds like that is the, the heart of um, women in medicine right up there in Philadelphia. How many faculty members do you have in Drexel? Um, Well, we're a large school. We have uh, over 260 students in a class. Between the full-time and the volunteer faculty, there are about 2,000 faculty, and there we have, mm, I, I think, nine campuses. Um, so um, we are quite large. Uh, we have a lot of very amazing, dedicated faculty, and we're one of three schools in Philadelphia. Um, and we have nice collaborations, by the way, in particularly in um women in medicine and science across the schools of Philadelphia. What are the other There's two schools? Jefferson and Penn, University of Pennsylvania. So what's, um, what are you peeking around the corner um, to do or what, what are you excited about or noodling around in your, in your offices there? Oh, I like that word canoodling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we are, I am personally a founding member of Times of Healthcare. Our school is one of the founding signatories, so we've been involved in um, that effort. We are at ELAM really thinking carefully about how to expand our programming. Um, the number of applications for ELAM every year is going up. The number of reapplications continues to go up, and there are many, many amazing women that we are not able to accept on any given year. And so we really are at the point of thinking about how do we expand, whether we have another session, whether we work to develop programming for women who are more apt to want to um, have a a trajectory on the C-suite side, so CEOs, that type of thing. We are also quite interested in being thoughtful about developing more programming for women who do hold the highest levels of positions. Um, So, for instance, deans or presidents. Um, As we all know, it gets very lonely the higher you go in leadership. And uh, to ensure that women are supported, uh, because those jobs are quite difficult, and uh, make sure they have the skills as well as the network to... um, keep them in their positions in a really healthy way and another place we're looking as well. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially with the whole, all this, the social media and e-everything and the fact that we're, I think, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some epidemiologic data to back this up, that we are so lonely as a culture. Mm-hmm. And I was just reading something today that the number of, um, appointments for uh, teen depression and young adult depression and on our campuses, the, the visits to the employee health services has gone up because of the uh, mental health issues. And so I think there's e- going to be even more need for, you know, we're, we're, as you said, you know, we're building leaders and we're, we're providing all these development, career development, professional activities and, you know, what you said is so important that maintaining that, that well-being when you're there and, and trying to make sure that, okay, now that you're there, 
let's make sure you, you excel and don't just get there. And it's the, the Peter principle where you rise to your level of incompetence and then your whole world comes crashing down. And so I, I've been thinking a lot about this epidemic of, of loneliness and isolation and um, just fe feeling like you're, you know, rudderless sometimes. So no, I, I think that's really important that you would branch out into, I don't know, trying to gr grow, grow that sense of community or relationship building or maintaining that so that we can all make sure we're helping each other out and keeping each other afloat. Absolutely. Completely agree. Very, very important. And, and there is a lot of work to do. And <laughs> that's why wherever I go, I, I say, you know, there's plenty of work. Let's all get together. Let's, you know, be passionate about this. Let's move forward. Um, and there are a lot of great men and women all over the country doing this incredible work. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Is there something else you wanted to leave us with, Nancy? Oh, I guess I just want to leave us with um, the inspiration that we can all do this. Um, we can do this together. We are really at a really pivotal time in our country um, to think about women rising in leadership. And I'm very excited to be a part of this journey. And we've built on the shoulders of giants, but we have lots of great opportunities. And I think we'll be very, very uh, happy in a few years when we have reached equity. That's my goal. We've been listening to and learning from Dr. Nancy Spector, the Associate Dean of Faculty Development at Drexel and the Director of ELAM, Executive Leadership in Academic Medicine. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.